Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Church. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Hebrews, chapter 3. look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 this morning. But before we read that, um, I'm going to talk this morning. We're going to, I'm going to ask the question, why do we practice biblical soul care? Now, if you're not part of a community group at Redeemer, um, you may have never heard of the term biblical soul care. But there's a, a set of DVDs, uh, just um, instructional, kind of instructional videos that our community groups are going through right now. It's a series, to 18 sessions, and so it's kind of making its way through all of our community groups, and it's titled Biblical Soul Care for the Local Church. And so um, that's kind of why we're asking this question this morning. Why do we practice biblical soul care? Why is it important? Why are we taking this time to, to sit through 18 <laughs> sessions in our community groups on why we do this and how do we do this and what is it? And so that's kind of where, where I'm coming from. So if you're not part of a community group at Redeemer, you might think, well, check it out now. You know, I mean, this doesn't really apply to me. Um, but hopefully we'll see that it does because biblical soul care is not just something we do, um, you know, a couple hours on a Wednesday night or whenever in our community group meets. So biblical soul care, as we'll see, is um, not only commanded by God, but is the responsibility of all believers within the community of faith. So. Uh, That's kind of where I'm coming from. So the question, why do we practice biblical soul care? Before we can even answer that question, we have to ask another question. What is it? What is biblical soul care? What what do I mean when I say that we are to care for the souls of another? Well, the definition that I came up with, this is my own definition just after thinking about this and... and, um, and studying the issue, my definition is biblical soul care is the task of every Christian in exercising authentic, biblically informed watchfulness and responsibility over the spiritual condition of another within the community of faith. That's a long definition, but it's basically caring, watching over the souls of the other believers within the community of faith. That's what I mean when we, when we say biblical soul care. Other names for biblical soul care are biblical counseling, intentional discipleship, mentoring, or just discipleship. Um, the, the website that, or the, the, the uh, church that puts these things out on their website, they define biblical soul care as speaking the truth in love, anchored in the word of God, depending on the spirit of God, and practiced in a community of believers. So there's just kind of some, some, some directions, some definitions of what biblical soul care is, and hopefully we'll see why it's important. But what's not important is what we call it. It's not really that important what we call it, whether it's biblical soul care or biblical counseling or discipleship or mentoring. But it is important that we know what it is and that we know why we practice it. So why do we practice it? Well, the first reason why we practice biblical soul care is because it's commanded. It is commanded in Scripture. Let me just read um, 
several scriptures that deal with this issue of biblical soul care. Romans 12:10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12:16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14:13, let us not pass judgment on one another. Romans 15:5, live in harmony with one another again. Romans 15:7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Romans 15:14, instruct one another. 2 Corinthians 13:11, comfort one another, agree with one another. Galatians 5:13, through love serve one another. Ephesians 4:32, be kind to one another, forgiving one another. Ephesians 5:19, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5:21, submit to one another. Colossians 3:13, bear with one another. And Colossians 3:16, teach and admonish one another. That's just a small sampling of a quick word study on the words one another. I mean, we could we could go to dozens of other places in the New Testament where we are commanded to admonish and encourage and instruct and teach and to and to do all of this to one another. The words one another appear 40 times just in the letters of the New Testament. Of the of the uh, 13 letters that Paul wrote, nine of them, have you ever thought about this? Nine of Paul's 13 letters were written not to specific people. Like you have First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, written to specific people. But the other nine letters were written to churches, to congregations just like us. So if we're going to read those letters and put those things in practice, we can only put those things in practice to the degree that we are involved with the community of believers. You can't put these things into practice unless there is another one to do this one anothering, right? There has to be someone else there. So often we put so much emphasis on our Christian walk as an individual. We, th- we really do think of ourselves many times as individual Christians. And our, we, we approach the Word of God in our, in our, at, at our desks or at our study, whatever it is. We approach the Word of God individually. We're seeking our own spiritual growth. We're seeking to pray for our own needs. And, and those things are good. We need to do that. I'm not saying stop doing that. But we need to realize that most of the New Testament was written to churches, to to groups of people, and it's expected that we are going to put these things into practice together as a community of faith. And so that's where I'm coming from um, when I say that it's a command. We are commanded by God to care for one another. Today we're going to look at Hebrews 13, or excuse me, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. That's going to be our main passage, and it is another one another passage. So let's read Hebrews chapter 13. 12 through 14. And this is a command. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm. To the end. That's Hebrews 3. I think I might have said 13. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. So, 
This is a command to take care, brothers, and also to exhort one another as long as it is called today. This is a command. But God's commands are not arbitrary, right? So if God's commands were arbitrary, if there was no purpose or reason or source for God's commands, if God just commanded us to, to do random things, so maybe we've got God created the universe, right? Uh, he created everything. He says, I think killing will be wrong, caring will be good. Just kind of pulling things out of thin air. Uh, I think uh, marriage will be good, adultery will be wrong. Right? That's not the way God did it. I mean, he didn't just sort of pull things out of thin air and decide that these are going to be good things and these are going to be bad things. If God did that, then the sermon would be over. We would just come here. I would say, God commands us to care for one another. We would close our Bibles and go home and say, all right, let's do it. But the Bible has a lot more to say about it than just, oh, yeah, okay, well, we're commanded to care for one another's souls. All right, we're done, right? No, there's reasons. There's a source for God's commands. There's a purpose behind God's laws and his commands and the things that he wants us to do. So, God's commands are not arbitrary. They are a reflection of his nature and they serve as pointers to a true knowledge of who he is. This is why when we obey God, we actually become more like him. When we follow in the footsteps of Christ, our hearts are enlarged with the things of God, and it becomes more natural for us to be like Him. So, to say that biblical soul care is commanded by God, we have to ask a deeper question. Why? Why is this commanded by God? Where is this coming from? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, okay? So here's a command. We're just pulling it out of Hebrews at this point. We just read it. We just pulled it completely out of its context. And we say, yes, we are commanded to do this. But where is this coming from? Where, why is the writer of Hebrews writing, take care, brothers? For that, we have to get the context, right? If there's one book, I mean, you don't ever want to pull anything out of context in the Bible. But man, <laughs> if there's one book especially, you don't want to rip things out of context. It's Hebrews. I mean, Hebrews is just one huge, complicated argument. So you can just rip anything out and make it say whatever you want. So we have to figure out, okay, where is this coming from? Why is the writer of Hebrews commanding us to do this? To do that, we've got to go back to the beginning. Hebrews chapter 1. What is Hebrews about? Well, the main theme of Hebrews is that Christ is greater than any angel, priest, or old covenant institution, okay? This is the main theme of the entire book. Thus, each reader, rather than leaving such a great salvation, is summoned to hold on by faith to the true rest found in Christ and to encourage others in the church to persevere. That's the main theme of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are struggling to know how to live under the new covenant of Christ. They are struggling to understand how Christ has fulfilled the law and what that means for how they relate to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But see, the author of Hebrews doesn't just come out and tell them, look, Christ fulfilled the law, so believe in him, stop sacrificing animals and start loving one another. He does say that, but he starts with something much deeper. He starts with the very nature of Christ himself. He wants to make his case for Christ from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. 
Because you see, you can't understand Christ's work unless you first understand who Christ is. In other words, the suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ means absolutely nothing unless you understand that Christ is the Son of God, that he's the exact imprint of God's nature, and that everything that exists was created by him and for him. His death can only be counted as substitutionary, as a substitutionary atonement, if these things are true about him. Now, I'm getting really, really into Hebrews at this point, okay? But I, I promise you, when we, get, we work our way back up to Hebrews 3, we're going to make a connection with biblical soul care here. But... Before we do that, we've got we to gotta see where is, where is he coming from. Well, what's Hebrews 1 about? Hebrews 1 and 2 can be summed up with these words. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than angels. Look with me in, in, ver, in chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then he uses uh, many Old Testament scriptures to argue that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now what way, in what way is Jesus greater than the angels? Well, we just read it. There's a, there's a lot of ways he talks about. We're just going to name three. There's at least three ways that Jesus is greater than the angels. First, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The second reason Jesus is greater than the angels is that all things were created for him. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Verse 3. The third reason that Jesus is greater than the angels, he made purification for sin by tasting death so that he might destroy the power of Satan and free his people from their slavery to sin. Flip over to chapter 2. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the things that through death, of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay? So remember what we're doing. We're asking the question, why in chapter 3, verse 12, is the writer of Hebrews commanding us to care for one another's souls? Okay, we're asking that question. And we're seeing now that before he gave that command, he tells us a whole lot about something. That something is the nature of Christ. He starts with the identity and the nature of Jesus himself. Jesus is greater than the angels. When you get to chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels because he created everything, and everything was created for him, and angels worship him, and he made purification for sins. He's greater than Moses. Look at chapter 3. Verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
Now Moses, verse 5, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Jesus is compared to Moses, and Jesus is greater. Why? Because Moses was just a servant in God's house. But Jesus is is a son. He's the heir of all things. So Jesus is greater than Moses. And then look what he says in verse 7 of chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So we see Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than than Moses. Don't be like the Old Testament Israelites who forgot these things. Instead, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So, what is the command? The command is to first take care. Literally, this word is look. Look around. Take care. Be watchful. Pick, get your eyes off of yourself and look around at other people. Take care, brothers. See if there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, why is this a command? Because he just quoted from the Old Testament that the Israelites were so prone to forget this. So prone to forget God's goodness and his deliverance. They were so prone in the wilderness that they began to grumble against God and complain. We don't have water. We don't have food. And God had just provided. He just rescued them out of Egypt, out of slavery, by doing incredible, miraculous things. And there's just... You know, days later, they're whining and complaining about food and water as if God's not going to take care of them. The writer of Hebrews says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So what's the command? The command is literally, look around. Get your eyes off of yourself. Look at the person sitting next to you. Look at their soul. Ask them questions. Get out of your comfort zone. Get involved in their lives. Take care. What's the command? The other command is to exhort one another. Verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. To exhort one another literally means to summon, to invite, to ask to implore, to comfort, and to encourage. It means all of those things. It can mean all of those things. To encourage someone, to implore them, to beg them, to plea with them, to exhort someone. It can can mean to confront them. Now, exhort one another every day 
as long as it is called today. Has there ever been a day of your life that was not called today? No. <laughs> Every day of your life is called today. So that's just a... a a uh, funny way of saying, do this every day. <laughs> every day, as long as it's called today, do this. Exhort one another daily. So, let me ask. When was the last time you looked around? When was the last time you got your eyes off of your own soul... Not in, a, not in a bad way. I mean, we need to look at our souls. We need to examine ourselves. But when was the last time we stopped being so self-absorbed and we began to, to, to really wonder and, and ask questions about the souls of those sitting around us? Perhaps you live in a house or an apartment with other believers. When was the last time you asked them about the state of their soul? Take care, brothers and sisters. Look around. When was the last time you encouraged someone? You think, well, played basketball with some guys the other night. I told so-and-so, hey, great job, buddy. Great job. That was a great shot. That's Okay, that's fine. That's not the kind of encouragement I'm talking about, right? When was the last time you comforted someone? When was the last time you implored someone begged someone, plead, pleaded with them. You see, these aren't just arbitrary commands either. Our exhortation and encouragement are not to be just general encouragement. General encouragement is fine. You know, it has its place. But they're meant, our encouragement is meant to contain a specific content. We aren't just encouraging one another in whatever we want. Our encouragement is meant to point people to the truths of the gospel. And we have right here what we're supposed to be encouraging one another to. What's the writer of Hebrews? What does he want them to not forget? Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. All things were created for him and through him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sins and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those are the things that we encourage one another with. Gospel truths. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from those truths. So the first reason we practice biblical soul care is commanded. The second reason, the second reason we practice biblical soul care is because we are sinners, prone to wander, and hell is real. You see, no one is meant to live the Christian life alone, cut off from other believers. Some of you have been trying. Some of you are still trying. To live your Christian life alone. You say, I'm not cut off from other believers. I live with a house full of Christian guys. Right? And I hang out with Christian people all the time. I'm not cut off. Are you? Do they really know what's going on in your soul? When was the last time you poured out your heart to them? Let them, let them in, to really in to your life. 
No one is meant to live the Christian life alone. An article I just read this week says this. There's a, there's a quote on there um, from Timmy Brister. Yeah. He says, Lone Ranger Christians are at best disobedient and dysfunctional. They are disobedient because numerous commands of Scripture require us to be in regular contact with other believers. One another commands. They are dysfunctional because the needs they have are not being met by the God-ordained means of gifts of the Holy Spirit through each member of his body. Perhaps what exists behind this is a denial of neediness, a determination of making it by self-determination and independence. Sadly, the state of existence is far too common in the church today. Does that describe you? When you think of your Christian life, do you think of it in terms of having to live up to other people's standards, sort of having to sort of maintain this pseudo Christianity, this this facade, this mask of Christianliness. You have to just keep up in order to keep people away. Because if they really knew, I mean, if they really knew what I was involved in, man, I mean, imagine how little they would think of me. If they really knew the sin that I struggle with. The command to exhort one another so that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is necessary because the Hebrews in the the biblical times and we ourselves are so prone to let our hearts grow cold. And we are so prone to wander We're so prone, just like these Hebrew Christians were, we're so prone to fall back into our old traditions, old rituals, old legalistic way of thinking. We're so prone to that. And we forget that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and that he made purification for sins. We're commanded, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does it mean to have our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? John Owen, Puritan pastor, puts it this way. There's another quote on there. This is a long quote, but it's really good. John Owen says this about this passage in Hebrews. You, who used to have great assurance of God's love, trembling at his presence, the thought of death, and your appearance before him, will now have a hardness in your heart that remains unmoved by these things. You will have no more conviction in your soul about your sin. You will be able to pass over spiritual duties like prayer and hearing and reading with with your heart not in the least affected by them. Sin will be a light thing to you and you will not be much troubled by it and what will be the end of such a condition can a sadder thing happen to you is this not enough to make any heart tremble to think of being in such a state alongside of this you will have little thoughts of his grace of his mercy of the blood of christ of the law and of heaven and hell take heed This is the outcome of harboring your lust, the hardening of your heart, the searing of your conscience, the blinding of your mind, the dulling of your affections, and the deceiving of your whole soul. 
That's what it means to have our hearts hardened. Listen, none of us woke up this morning and said, Ah, today, I'm going to deny the faith. My Christian walk is over. None of us woke up and said that. At least I hope not. In fact, most of us probably woke up thinking positive thoughts about coming to church, coming to a church service, seeing friends, singing songs, and hearing a sermon. That's great. And while those things are good, they can also be very deceptive. Because we can do all those things, and we can put on a show, and we can half-heartedly love the things God loves, while at the same time harboring sin and unrepentance in our hearts. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought? Have you ever considered that you could, you could come to church, Redeemer Church, every Sunday for the rest of your life? You can be involved in community group every week and life transformation group every week. You could do all of these things and 50, 60, 70 years from now, when you lay your head on your pillow for the last time and prepare to meet judgment, you, will, you could die in your sins. Have you ever considered that? I, I had a grandfather who died when I was in college. And uh, as long as I've been alive, he had been going to our church, the church I grew up in. He had heard the gospel every Sunday, sermon after sermon after sermon. The gospel was preached. So I was just starting to, to get serious about my faith in Christ when I was in college. And he was in the nursing home. He was very sick. He was expected to die. So I went to visit him one day when I was back home. And uh, I, I just decided I was going to ask him just flat out. I've never really had like a real conversation with my grandfather. But... I just decided, I'm just gonna, I gotta ask him, I gotta know what is the state of, of his soul. So I get there, and we, you know, make small talk. He was telling me about his days, you know, in the military, in the war. He, he had purple hearts and bronze stars, and, you know, he was, he was a war hero. He really was. Um, pulled guys out of machine gun fire. Um, and so we, we, we talked about that, and then I, I just flat out asked him, I said, Grandpa, are you sure that if you were to die today, that you would spend eternity with God in heaven? And you know what he said? He said, can we really know? I mean, can we really know anyway? And then he started just sort of listing off the things that he had done. I mean, I've been going to church. You know, I mean, I used to do this. I haven't done that in years. Can we really know? Now, I'm not going to stand here and say that I know that my grandfather was not a believer. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know the state of his soul. But here was a man who sat under biblical teaching for as long as I've been alive, 20-some years, probably longer, week after week after week, three times a week at least, sat under biblical teaching. And he gets to the end of his life. He has no assurance. Friends, when we harbor sin, when we leave sin 
in our in our souls, and we don't repent of that sin. We don't let other people in. We don't let others know about it. We don't confess it. We don't seek to destroy it. John Owen says, we must seek to be destroying sin or it will destroy us. Our hearts grow cold. Our hearts grow numb and hard to the gospel. And the more that you sit under the gospel teaching, the harder your hearts get. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He gives us command because we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to fall back into our sin. We are so prone to hide it. But also, you can see uh, in, my, in my point there, I tacked on because we are sinners prone to wander and hell is real. Now, why did I just tack that on at the end? Hell is real. Well, the children's catechism, if, which we teach to our children in the, in the children's ministry, one of the questions is this. What did God give Adam and Eve besides bodies? The answer, souls that never die. The next question. <laughs> did God also give you a soul or something like that right yeah 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 and the answer is and i had this down like 10 minutes ago the answer is yes i have a soul that never dies so you have two questions that deal specifically with the etern the eternity the eternality of the soul the human soul hell is real your soul will never die which means the reality of hell must be on our minds. When we think about our souls and the state of our souls, we have to remember our souls are going to live forever. They're going to live in heaven with Jesus, or they're going to be tormented and tortured in hell. You know, when I, when I sit there and I... And I, re, and I read these catechism questions off at our dinner table with, with my four-year-old daughter and my two-year-old son, and I ask them, what did, what did God give, Nella, what did God give Adam and Eve besides bodies? And she says, souls that never die. She has no idea like, what, what, what that means. Right? Souls that never die. She's just trying to be funny, and it's cute and everything, but there's times when you know, she's over there joking and laughing, and her and Silas are saying, souls that never die, and I'm just sitting there thinking, she has no idea the eternal weight of what that means. I do. Man, I, I long. I, I mean, my daughter has a soul that will live forever. Her only hope is the gospel. Richard Baxter, another Puritan pastor, puts it this way. This is our case, brethren. He's talking to pastors, but it applies to everyone. This is our case, brethren. The work of God must needs be done. Souls must not perish. 
while you mind your worldly business or worldly pleasure and take your ease or quarrel with your brethren. Nor must we be silent while men are hastened by you to perdition and the church brought into greater danger and confusion for fear of seeming too uncivil and unmannerly with you or displeasing your impatient souls. Men and women are racing to perdition all around us. There's no guarantee that the person sitting next to you will be here tomorrow. Do you care for her soul? Do you care for his soul? If you say you do, then do. Take care. So, why do we practice biblical soul care? One, because it's commanded. Two, because we are sinners, prone to wander, and hell is real. And three, because the gospel is our only hope. We never move beyond the gospel. You can see that everything that we've seen so far, all we're doing when we're doing biblical soul care is we're just continually pointing each other back to the gospel. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God, creator of all things, right? That he made purification for sins. He delivered us from slavery, defeated death. That's all we're doing is pointing one another back to, the, to gospel truth. We never move beyond the gospel. The gospel is a message and it must be preached to ourselves daily. We must hear it from ourselves and we must hear it from others. Some of us need to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. Some of us listen to ourselves far too often. We need to start preaching to ourselves, preaching these gospel truths, but not just to ourselves, but to one another. Christ has made propitiation for your sin. You do not have to hide it. You can let people in on your dirty little secrets because the grace and mercy of God is bigger than that sin. And there is therefore now no condemnation for that sin. And you can experience, and this is, this is key, guys. This is so important. You can experience true friendship and true community when you become vulnerable and are able to experience the love and fellowship of brothers and sisters who know the very worst things about you and still love you. That is what makes God look glorious. Big deal if you love me because we both enjoy the same music. Big deal if our personalities are similar and so we click. That doesn't make God look glorious. Unbelievers have that connection. What makes God look glorious is when you know every dirty little secret in my heart. And you still love me as your brother. That is the love that we are called to have. That is what the church is for. That is what makes God look glorious. And some of you here today are neglecting that. Your hearts are being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You are neglecting the community of believers, the community of faith. You, you might hang out with Christians all the time. But this 
biblical soul care may not be happening. So, why do we practice biblical soul care? One, it's commanded. Two, because we are sinners prone to wander and hell is real. And three, because the gospel is our only hope. One last question. Is the church really necessary for this? I mean, really, Caleb. I got some serious issues. Doesn't this kind of practice, I mean, we're talking about, you know, like helping people with issues of sin and addiction. And, and the, doesn't this kind of thing belong in the realm of, like, psychology and professionals, right? Aren't there people that are specifically trained to deal with these issues? A lot could be said about that, but let me just say this. No. Caring for one another's souls. The end. Pack it up. Um, caring for one another's souls is the responsibility of all Christians. We already saw these commands are given to one another. They're written to congregations, to churches. No distinction is made in the scriptures when it comes to this task. It is given to everyone. Modern psychology... This is all I'm going to say about modern psychology because there's books written about this and I can point you to those if you want more. But modern psychology cannot address the deepest issues of the human heart because it rests on unbiblical and oftentimes atheistic principles that deny essential, essential doctrines of the Christian faith, such as original sin, personal responsibility, the existence of the soul, and especially biblical authority. Modern psychology has nothing to do with those. They don't want anything to do with those. They deny those flat out. They're hostile to the things of God. That's a blanket statement, okay? But there's all kinds of resources that I would be happy to point you to if, you, if you're interested in the, searching these things out. While modern pop psychological methods might provide temporary relief from the symptoms of your sin, they cannot cure the disease that is rotting away your bones. Depression, addiction, foolishness, laziness, fear, lust, pornography, the love of money, these are all just symptoms. Sin is the cancer. And if you want to destroy what is destroying you, you have to go to the source. And the gospel is our only hope. Now, in what way is the gospel our only hope? We're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. This is a, just a great way for us to encourage one another in the gospel. The Lord's Supper... Um, is a tangible, sensual, I mean, I mean that it deals with uh, all of our senses, sensual way to experience the grace of God revealed in the gospel, in bread and in the, in, in the, in the, the juice and the cup. We do this as a community of believers. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But before we do that, 
We're going to do a couple things. First, I'm going to read some scriptures. Just three or four scriptures that deal with the gospel. And, and what, what do I mean when I say that the gospel is our only hope as, as we do this? And then I'm going to conclude, and then we're going to sing, sing a song, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. So think about these promises. I, as I was preparing this message, I just started, just passages started coming to my mind that deal just with the glorious truths of the gospel. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, okay, biblical soul care, this is what I need to be doing. How do I do it? Maybe you don't even know the word of God well enough to, to, to be able to point people to something. Well, let me just give you some gospel truths. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Romans 3:21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Romans 5, 6-9. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we started by asking the question, why do we practice biblical soul care? But I think a better question for us to think about is, why don't we practice biblical soul care? Is it because it makes us uncomfortable to talk to our brothers and sisters about our sin? Is it because we have filled our lives to the brim with triviality and fluffiness and laugh tracks and amusements so that when we start talking about things like God, sin, righteousness and judgment, it feels like we're trying to speak a different language? One that is unfamiliar, so we shrink back from it because it's just easier to talk about superficial things instead of dealing with issues that carry eternal significance. Is that why we don't practice biblical soul care? Is it because your knowledge of Scripture is so deplorable that you would be embarrassed if anyone else knew that until today you didn't even know the Bible had anything to say about how to care for one another? After all, isn't this stuff just for pastors and leaders anyway? So why don't we practice biblical soul care? Is it because we are failing to love one another and serve one another the way Christ loves and serves us? Why don't we practice biblical soul care? Brothers and sisters, let's be brothers and sisters. Let's care for one another's souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you, you have not just left us with a list of commands. God, you don't just give us a book 
and say, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But you say, do this, and do this for these reasons. God, we have grounding. We have foundation under our lives. I pray that we would be people who know why and and it would be people who know why we do what we do. Help us to love one another, Lord, not simply because we're commanded, but we would love one another because we see that we are so prone to wander. We would love one another and hold one another fast to the faith because hell is real and the gospel is our only hope. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.